I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. Joining me today is Dr. David Rothenberg, a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He is also a composer, jazz musician, author, and naturalist whose work reflects his special interest in the musicality of animals. Welcome to Enhance Life with Music, Dr. Rothenberg. Thanks for inviting me. David, you've played your clarinet along with birds, whales, and singing insects. You've made numerous recordings, books, and films about the process. And these works have been the subject of documentaries made around the world. When was it that you first started to think about animal sounds as music? Well, I think I first started thinking about this when I was in high school, and I learned that Near where I lived in Connecticut, there was a jazz musician named Paul Winter who had been playing with whales and wolves, and uh, he lived pretty close to me. Mm. So then I I got to know him, and I saw that there there was this example. At least one musician had made his life's work to connect music and particularly jazz with nature. And then for many years, I didn't really do anything with it because I assumed that there must be a lot of people thinking about this. But it turned out there weren't so many, and I realized that... uh, more could be done. And this Mm. was a whole kind of undiscovered area, way of thinking about the music nature around us that made uh, the natural world so much more beautiful and accessible and interesting to us. Mm. And what was your musical background at that point when you were in high school? You know, I I played clarinet and saxophone in the jazz band and the orchestra. And, you know, I practiced a certain amount. And I also really liked... Around that time, I started getting interested in my own direction in music, like I wanted to do something my own way. Mm. Like I had a kind of personal vision of being different and not kind of doing what everyone else did. Mm. Did you realize at that point that you really wanted to have a career in music? I think not really. I, I thought I would combine it somehow with a career in, in, in caring about the environment, either oh, okay. science or activism. Uh. I sort of thought that... Uh, I, w- I wouldn't have it as as the like the center, and then uh, over time, as I did many different things, it it seemed like I couldn't escape it, and at least it was some aspect of my life that was the most uniquely my own. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't get away because this is what made me more different from mm-hmm. others. Well, and during the days when you were in high school, we didn't have social media. How did you hear about Paul Winter? You said he lived in the area. Was he kind of a local celebrity? Or how did, uh, how did no, I read, I read about him in the New York Times. I always read the newspaper a lot. And there was a mm. review of his album called Common Ground, which is uh, a record that was like putting forth this musical environmental manifesto through these sounds. And, and then I thought, this is interesting. So, you know, I was always reading and I've learned, I still to this day learn so much reading the news every day. Uh Thing, thing, like today, there's a news story about somebody studying the whole of undersea soundscapes Mm -hmm. to try and understand the ocean, not just individual species, but the whole thing as a kind of sonic indicator. Ah. And that was this unusual story to see reported widely in the media. Yeah. That's something I've heard about in this interesting way in which the things I'm interested in working, sometimes playing along with individual animals connects to paying attention to the whole soundscape. So Mm. I was pleased to see that story. Mm. Well, I assume that the animal sounds, the the singing that they make is communication, 
of some sort. Can you tell us why birds and whales and insects sing? And is it is the answer the same for all of them? Or do we need to kind of break it down by birds? Why do they sing? And whales, why do they sing? Well, what does communication mean to you when you say it's some sort of communication? Yeah, it means there's a purpose. They're attracting a mate. They're warning about a predator. They're marking territory, something like that. That's something that happens a lot of the time. It's true. But then you have to think about what uh, what's the nature of this communication. Like um, I talk, took a class in college with the composer Ivan Cherepnin called Music and Communication, which is a step after high school where I started learning about these issues. And, uh, you know, music when played by humans is also a form of communication, but it communicates differently than, say, language does. Like when you speak of language, a sound has a specific meaning. You can translate it. You can say this sound means something like, Mm -hmm. help, I'm in danger, or I'm hungry, or watch out, a predator Mm -hmm. is coming. That's like a linguistic sense of meaning. But musical communication, think about it. We put together all these sounds, you know, someone's playing a flute or a guitar. All these sounds are put together. You can't really say what it means, There's no words with this music. Imagine it's instrumental music. It doesn't have an exact translatable meaning. Do we know if it does within the species? Well, in the human species, what does it mean when someone plays a guitar? You know, we can say, oh, it's to attract a mate, or this musician is defending his territory. And there could be some truth in that. But the fact is, the meaning comes across in the performance, the structuring of these sounds just in and of themselves. And the way a lot of animal sound works is the same way. And of course, each species and each species kinds of sounds are different. But when a bird is singing, he is putting together sounds in a particular way, following certain rules. They need to be performed a certain way. And that music of each songbird species is what identifies that species and separates that species from all other species. And you can say, oh, it is mostly the males that are singing. You could say he's doing it to attract a mate or defend his territory, but still the what he is doing is, to me, the most interesting part. He's making a kind of music or he's communicating in a way much closer to music than it is to language. Hmm. You've collaborated with neuroscientists on understanding animal sounds. How exactly does this research happen? I mean, can you actually hook up a functional MRI to some of these animals? Well, the first step is that you wonder why is it that neuroscientists are interested in something like this? Turns out there's thousands of neuroscientists around the world studying the brains of birds and studying the songs of birds. And one reason this is such a big area for research is that uh, not so many animals have what we call vocal learning, meaning they can learn with, with new sounds. Songbirds can learn sounds as they, throughout their lives, they can learn new sounds. They, they learn to make these songs. They're not born with that ability. Humans, of course, can learn sounds. So can dolphins, some seals. But, you know, most animals cannot. Our closest relatives cannot learn with new sounds. That's why you cannot teach a chimpanzee to speak. They're smart. You can teach them to communicate using pointing to matrix boards or sign language. But you can't They can't learn with sound. So the neuroscientists say, hmm, what is it about the brains of birds 
that are closer to human brains that even our closest relatives among other primates do not have. Mm-hmm. Something in the brains of those birds that is closer to what we have. And so neuroscientists are very interested in identifying what that is. And they're very interested in what goes on in the brains of birds when they put together all these sounds one after another in a structure that's much closer to music than it is to language. So what is different about the bird's brain that allows them to learn through sound? If you if you identify the areas of the brain of the bird and what each area is doing, it's surprisingly similar to the human brain in terms of learning. And that's amazing to imagine because these animals are quite different to us. They have the way the way that you know, we don't know that all that much despite all these years of neuroscience how the brain's actually working. We know that neurons in certain areas of the brain seem to get active when certain things are happening. And these areas in the bird brain have been identified to show many, many parallels to brains, to what goes on in the human brain. And the uh, most practical, I think, uh, discovery neuroscientists have made in this is when, when adult songbirds learn new songs, they get new connections between neurons in their brain. It's called neural plasticity. So more neurons are formed. Like we used to learn that by the time we're 18, we got all the brain cells we're going to have and they just die off one by one. That's Uh an older idea. It turns out not to be true that learning music for songbirds is good for their brains and learning new, new things for humans throughout our lives is good for our brains. It helps keep them active builds the connections between brain cells, turning them into neurons. That- and do scientists measure this plasticity and the areas of the bird brain that are lighting up or that are active by MRIs? You know, it's hard to put a songbird into an MRI. So they, have, uh, <laughs> they do many different things. Traditionally, they would kill the birds when they're singing. and They call it the sacrifice. Oh, my. You know, but people don't like doing that. No, scientists don't, non-scientists don't. So they've developed more, you know, more accurate recent ways to study what goes on in the brain without harming the brain, without harming the bird. The most basic of these methods is a quite simple one, simply recording all the sounds they make, a vast library, and you can hear what the birds do. And this, this is a research pioneered by one scientist I've collaborated with, Ofer Chernikovsky who's at Hunter College, City University of New York, he recorded every sound birds make as they learn to sing. And then you find out all these amazing things about how the birds learn. They learn a little bit, they forget a little bit. Sometimes when they get a new idea, they fall asleep right away, let it sink in. He just observed what they were doing. He didn't have to harm them. So when you say that birds out. when you say that birds are learning new songs and new sounds is that sort of like an infant child who learns twinkle twinkle little star and then they leave, they learn the star spangled banner eventually or are you talking about birds learning not songs that birds and their species have been singing for centuries or longer but they're actually coming up with their own compositions their good own question. songs um, you know in most of these cases the birds are learning the songs of their species from adult birds adult male birds they hear them and they learn what they pick up and certain songbirds can only learn during a three-month period when they're very young many birds are like that that's kind of fixed learning period they call wow. it but other birds can learn their whole lives and these are the ones where the neural plasticity surprised scientists when they discovered it birds like canaries nightingales mockingbirds they can learn their whole lives people are used to keeping canaries for centuries as pets and these canaries learn songs their whole lives so these are can- new songs that other birds around them may not be singing and they didn't learn it from the birds around them 
in most cases, they are learning them from the birds around them, but some birds are, are, have been shown to be very effective improvisers and figuring out their own songs, like catbirds when studied. A catbird left alone can figure out what to sing and do okay. But mm. most birds need to hear the model songs, the, the right songs, or they're going to learn things that are incorrect. And part of Chernikovsky's research is teaching birds the wrong songs and then letting them loose into a community of birds, see how they do singing something nobody wants to hear. Ha, huh, interesting. So when you play your clarinet along with birds, for example, do you have reason to believe that they are listening to you and responding and innovating and changing their response based on what you're playing? Well, my favorite is to play with a bird who knows a lot of songs, like a nightingale. Later, we're going to hear a recording I made in Helsinki. I'm playing live with a bird called the thrush nightingale one of the two species that lives in Europe. And this bird knows a lot of songs. Common nightingales know hundreds of songs. Thrush nightingales know about 50 or 60. So he knows a lot of, he has a lot of phrases up his sleeve. And then he can decide which ones to use. That's a lot of things to work with. He's not likely to learn directly from me or copy from me, which I don't think would be very musically sensitive in any case. He's going to interact with me and do something that he thinks goes along with what I'm doing and these birds the way they, they one german study of nightingales says there's three basic ways a nightingale will react to another song he hears in his midst if he's just establishing his territory he will interrupt constantly mm-hmm. try and get in the way of the sound he hears if his territory is already established and they're very territorial even so much so that when they fly to africa in the winter they come back the next year to the same exact tree oh wow they figure it out then he's going to leave space. He'll go, boo, boo, boo. And then he waits and he hears, from a neighboring tree, back and forth, leaving space in between. And then the third way that they respond is a bird just sings as if no one else is around. He, maybe he listens to you, maybe he doesn't. He doesn't care. He's just singing as if no one is listening. And several people have pointed out, well, these are kind of the three sorts of jazz musicians you might meet on stage. Someone <laughs> leaves space for you, constantly interrupts you, or just plays as if, as if he's the only one who matters. <laughs> and so that's kind of, it shows really this is a musical form of life these birds are, up, are in the midst of. They need to sing. They have to sing. That's what they do. So people ask me, why birds sing? I wrote a book of that title. I sing because they sing because they must. They have to. They've evolved this need, just like people. We need to make music. Mm-hmm. We just have to do it, no matter what's going on. Stuck inside because of a pandemic virus, people are still just making more music than ever before, even if maybe no one's around to hear it. We just uh-huh. have to do it. It's part of human life. It's part of the life of these birds, too. It's part of the life of certain species of whales, like humpback whales. It's certainly part of the lives of many, many species of insects who've been singing for millions of years before all these other more complicated creatures ever evolved. All of that insect music going on out there. So when you say that they just have to sing, do you think they sing for the joy and the pleasure of singing? Well, then you ask that question, you have to think, then what kind of answer would I be satisfied with? So scientists who study what goes on in brains say, oh, we must find a way to measure joy, measure happiness. Well, we know certain chemicals are released in brains, dopamine, for example, Mm -hmm. when someone is happy, when they're enjoying themselves. And so birds have been studied, yes, dopamine is released when they sing, they're enjoying it. 
So that would one way, but someone else would say, I don't want any chemicals. I don't want any data. I just want to feel it. And I feel happiness when I hear this. The birds must feel it too. And some would say that's, well, that's anthropomorphic. That's imagining animals are like people. But, you know, why is that necessarily less objective than assuming they're different from us? You know, we are living things. We both have the need to make music. It's not unscientific to assume that an animal enjoys something that it's doing that we also feel joy in hearing. Yeah, well, it's been said that music is the sound of emotions. And I don't really ever think about animals' capacity to experience emotions and express them in their song or in their their singing. But the presence of dopamine, that's pretty interesting. Is there anything else that gives us any indication of how much animals have a capacity to experience emotion and express it? Many things. I mean, think of your, your pets, your dogs and cats and birds. and what, what are they making sound for? They're more likely expressing emotion than trying to express a specific message that we don't understand. The sound comes through an emotional sense. Huh. And however you define emotions, however you want to measure it, there's no doubt that animals are experiencing emotions in many different ways. Oh, fascinating. Well, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking of a very unscientific example of animals communicating. I'm thinking of the cartoon 101 Dalmatians, <laughs> where the dogs are commu- howling to each other to communicate across the countryside that all of these puppies have been kidnapped. How, how much actual communication is there between, say, birds with each other? And how much of it is that's just what they do? And maybe they're happy. And Well, there's all kinds of research done on that. That in many different forms. I mean, there's, for example, in the 1950s, it was already discovered by Peter Marler that five different species of British birds make the same sound when a hawk flies overhead. Ah. The sound sort of resembling a red-tailed hawk, like, ah. and it's not the song uh-huh. that those birds usually make. It's like an alarm call. Uh-huh. And presumably, the different species understand that simultaneously. It's not just one species speaking to its own members of that species. There's a kind of interspecies communication in animals, birds, insects, that isn't studied as much as it should be. Mm. The standard idea is, uh, you know, an animal makes a sound specifically tuned for its, its species that others will not respond to. But clearly they do respond in many ways to sounds made by other species. Ah, you've had many experiences making music with other species. Is there any experience that stands out above the others as especially powerful or meaningful or impactful or surprising? There are many. The one you're going to listen to is a piece from my my album, Nightingales in Berlin, that goes together with a book and film of the same name about playing music with nightingales in Berlin. But this recording is from Helsinki. We went there for several reasons. One, it's the first place I ever heard nightingales. I heard this weird sound in the middle of the night. I had no idea that was a nightingale. Secondly, it's a light all night long because it's June. And if you're making a film, it's nice to have some light. (laughs) Nightingales are not so happy with the situation because they're used to hiding in the dark. No one can see them. Here they are in this part of the world where it's in June, it's light all night long, the midnight sun. And so they're kind of pissed off and they're kind of unhappy. They're kind of miffed by the fact that they can be seen and they move constantly instead of just standing on one branch. And at this particular moment, I was just so tired of doing this because we had been up every night from like 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. Then we try and sleep and it was messing with our circadian rhythms Mm -hmm. and, and the absurdity of the process was seeming very 
extensive. By this point, I was just tired of doing this. I had no idea if anyone's hearing anyone else, any kind of communication is happening, any kind of music is being made from between human and bird. And so I just started playing like, oh, this is clearly going to be a waste of time. We've clearly done this too much and I'm totally worn out in the experience. And this turned out to be my favorite recording of the whole project. Mm. And that's what we're going to be hearing as part of the coda. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to hear that. It's called Sharawaji Blues because it's a kind of bluesy in feel and it's named after something called the Sharawaji effect, which is an idea about aesthetics in nature pioneered by landscape designers in the the 18th century. They talked about Sharawaji was a perfect blending of putting these trees here, these plants here, this open space in your design for a garden. So you felt like you had come to the perfect place. Everything was so perfect. It was natural but artificial, made by humans, but seemed so perfectly right. It couldn't be any other way. And so some people, um, some sound theorists started talking about Sharawaji effect in terms of sound, like imagining that there could be a, um, you know, a perfect sound where you hear nature and, and, and space and the background and the foreground and everything sounding utterly perfect. And you could find this by wandering into the forest, traveling, suddenly alighting upon it, or you could create it by making a sound that fits in with what's around it in a perfect way. Hmm. So, so this idea is a kind of aesthetic notion, hard to define what it is, but something you, one could be striving for, looking for, the sense of a music that fits in with the world around it. Mm, interesting. Well, you're always collaborating with a wide range of international experts on the subject of sounds of other species. Are there any new or recent projects or topics that you're working on that aren't classified and you can tell us about? Yeah, yeah. some of them are classified, but these are not. Okay. One, one thing I'm doing is I'm working on a research paper together with, with two different kinds of scientists. One naturalist, Dave Gammon, who's probably the world expert on mockingbird songs. He can listen to a mockingbird and tell you everything that's going on, everything the bird is copying, what he's doing with each sound. He's just listened to them for years. And the other collaborator is Tina Roske in, in Frankfurt. She's a neuroscientist, once worked in the Chernikovsky lab. And she's used to c- computational neuroscience, taking signals, analyzing them, looking for patterns, similarity, structure, using a lot of uh, statistical analysis that scientists like to do. These are two very different kinds of scientists they don't really use the same methods. They're both scientists using very different approaches. We're, appro- we're looking at this phenomenon. And I'm looking at the phenomenon of uh, mockingbird song. You probably heard mockingbirds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they cut and paste little fragments of other bird sounds. But what I was thinking listening to them is they're not just copying other bird sounds. They're structuring them together following very, very specific rules. You can always tell when it's a mockingbird who's doing the imitating rather than the other species, because the way they do it is so stylized, so specific, so much, a a bunch of aesthetic rules that they're following, and no one seems to have articulated what these rules are. And so we're trying to do that. And we're focusing on the transition between one sound and the next. It turns out when a mockingbird moves from one sound to a related sound, he is doing it in very, very specific ways, using certain strategies that are easy to notice, but in a way hard to describe. So we're trying to describe them in a way that will make the musician, myself, happy, the naturalist happy, and that's accurate, 
and then the computational neuroscientist happy in that it's rigorous, statistically true, you know, and so sure. it's a meeting of different approaches. Well, I'll include a lot of links in the show notes on ways that listeners can learn more about your work, your book, link to your books and your videos and your music. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending. And you already introduced this coda to us by talking a little bit about the song that we're about to hear. Is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about the song before we listen to it? Well, as I recorded this, I said, well, this is a complete waste of time. <laughs> and it turned out to be, you don't always know as you while you're doing something whether uh-huh. it's going to be any good. You, you can't always tell. Sometimes what you think is a complete failure turns out to be a success, and you should always be open to, uh, to that possibility. Sure. In a way, that kind of takes the pressure off. Because when we're really focused, like I am in the spotlight, this is my one chance to make or break it, then that animal brain can sort of take over and we lose control of that frontal cortex part of the brain. And whereas if we're just relaxed and like, oh, this something may happen, something may not, I imagine that's where we can do some of our best work. That's what I think. And one thing I would say is you people ask you, why aren't there enough people to play with? Why are you bothering these birds (laughs) trying to play with them? And I'm saying that, you know, if you consider the sounds in the natural world as music, then they're wonderfully, instantaneously accessible to us. And they're able to make something together that, you know, the world becomes alive in a way you didn't expect. It becomes beautiful in a way you didn't expect. Uh, I love that concept. Thank you. 
is a bit of Sharawaji Blues from David's album Nightingales in Berlin. He does have a documentary by the same name. I'll include links in the show notes to David's music, videos, and books. He has a YouTube channel. So lots of fascinating resources on this topic. Thanks so much to Dr. Rothenberg for sharing with us today. This topic makes me think of the Psalms that talk about all the earth and everything in it shouting for joy to the Lord and bursting into jubilant song with music. Psalm 98 is one that talks about this. And I also think about the carol we hear so much this time of year, joy to the world and the refrain and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. It's really cool to learn more about the singing of nature. And this week is the week of Christmas. So to all of you who celebrate Christmas, let me wish you a very merry and blessed Christmas. I recognize that the holidays can be a very sad and challenging time for a lot of people. If the holidays are a difficult time for you or a loved one, you are not alone. And music has unique abilities to heal and comfort. You may find hope and encouragement in listening to episode 20, Music Heals the Soul. Links are in the show notes, which can be found at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 74. Thank you for joining me today. However you end up celebrating the holidays in this strange year of 2020, may those celebrations be enhanced with music.